You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. So before we read this passage in Mark chapter 14, I want to show you this place called Gethsemane because this is an actual place that you can still go to today. And as we are looking for at these pictures, um, just a, a quick uh, reminder, if you uh, came in this morning and did not receive one of those bulletins, uh, our ushers are coming down uh, the rows here. If you'll just raise your hand, that'll be important because there's blanks that we need to fill out as we uh, go through this message. But I want to show you this place called Gethsemane. That's a place you can actually go to today. If you look up here at this picture, you're looking right outside uh, the east of uh, city wall of Jerusalem. And that is the Mount of Olives. And I know you can't probably see everything in that picture, but the Mount of Olives is a hill just to the east of the city, old city of Jerusalem. And it is full of olive trees. And especially during the time of Jesus and the disciples, this hill was filled with olive trees. And olive trees are a big staple in Israel. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But the next photo here, you'll see that this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross. And you'll notice that there's a building surrounding that small garden area. Anywhere you go in Israel where there is an event that was significant that took place in Scripture, there is a church there to commemorate that event. And the church at the Garden of Gethsemane is called uh, the Church of All Nations because all nations around the world, uh, a lot of different nations, you know, funded for this church to be built many, many, many years ago. Um, and so if you go to the next picture, you'll see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are these olive trees. Those trees are grown all over Israel, and they, have, uh, they produce a fruit called an olive. And we'll talk about olives here in just a second. But the next picture is more uh, these olive trees that are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. They're very old and very beautiful. And like I was telling you, this is an actual place. And the reason I can tell you that is with this next picture is, Hey, I really was there. Okay, so I'm not making this stuff up. The Garden of Gethsemane is a real place that you can go visit in Jerusalem today. And for some of you going on the uh, uh, trip to Israel in January with the church, man, this is going to be a great place to visit. But we can go to the next picture. Enough about me. Uh, This is called the Stone of Agony. And um, this is believed to be the place where Jesus fell... And began praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, do we know that 100% sure through archaeological evidence? No. But tradition that has been passed down orally over the hundreds of years has always said that this is the place, the rock, where Jesus actually prayed. Okay? We know 100% that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Is this the exact you know, spot, maybe, maybe not. But if it's not the exact spot, then we are very, very, very close to where he was. So they call this the stone of agony where Jesus prayed. 
And then the next picture we're going to end on is olives. You know, I showed you those olive trees. And um, this is what olives look like. You can see a hand behind those olives. You know, they're very small. And uh, these olives grow in bunches uh, all over these trees. And so it is very important that you kind of get this picture in your head as we read this passage and begin to talk about this passage this morning because Gethsemane literally means oil press. And the oil comes from these olives. And we're going to see how that is significant as we read this passage of Scripture. So let's look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 32 through 41. So, beginning in verse 32 of Mark chapter 14, the Word of God says this, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping Because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And in verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let's go! Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am praying that this morning that I would just simply be your vessel and instrument. That, Lord, you would speak to our hearts. That I would communicate articulately and boldly the message you've laid upon my heart for this congregation. Lord, I humble myself behind you today. And may people see you, Jesus, and how you're at work in and around and through our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you look in your notes here this morning, we're going to talk about three things that make Gethsemane a place of transformation. And so your first point you'll see in your notes this morning is that Gethsemane is a place of pressure. All right. Gethsemane was a place that was often visited by Jesus and by his disciples. And we see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Gethsemane seems to have been like this refuge and a place for the Lord to go to. 
It was a place where he could find solitude from the crowds of ministry that occupied his life. It was a place that he could go to find a private moment to commune with his heavenly father. It was a place of a sanctuary from the attacks of the religious leaders and those that did not follow him. It was a place of refreshment after a long day of ministry uh, in Jerusalem. It was just a very special place for Jesus and his disciples. That word Gethsemane, as I said earlier, literally means oil press. Gethsemane was and still is a place where olive trees grow and produce their fruit. These olives were collected and they were placed in a press and the oil that is extracted from that press, uh, from all that intense pressure, would then become used for different things uh, like you know, food, oil for lamps, and different things like that. But in order to illustrate this point even further, I have a video that I want to share with you that explains more about olives and how significant the oil press is and how it is significant to Gethsemane. So if we can, let's go ahead and play that video. Hello, my name is Majd, and I'm one of the guides at Nazareth Village. We are standing in our fully functioning replica of a first-century olive press. We are entering the rainy season at the moment, uh, November and December, and this is the olive season, so our villagers already started harvesting the olives off of the trees, and we bring them in here in order to press them. Uh, of course, olives are hard. You cannot just press them right away. Uh, the first thing you do in the process is crushing them. And that's why we use this big stone over here. Uh, Mosey, the donkey, is helping us move the stone around. And this stone will crush the olives and the pits. Everything needs to be crushed so finely until it turns into paste. And then it's ready for the next uh, stage of pressing. The crushed olives then are placed in baskets like the one you see over here. We're hanging it on the wall. But of course you lay it flat. And then there are pockets to the sides where you put the crushed olives preparation for uh, the, the actual pressing process. And then you take about 10, 15 baskets to press them together at the press. Now the baskets are brought over here and stacked on top of each other. Underneath them, there's a hole in the ground that is about two feet deep and it gets also a bit wider as it goes in. So as you press the baskets over here, oil is gonna gather underneath. The beam of wood sits on top of the baskets, applying its weight as pressure. And then the three weights, the stone weights, are lifted using pulleys and leverage uh, in order to apply more pressure on top of the baskets. Each group of baskets gets pressed three times. The first time you apply pressure, you get the best quality oil. And according to the Jewish law, the first of your fruits you offer to God. So the oil from the first pressing, they will not use at home. They will take it to the temple in Jerusalem. The second time they applied pressure, they got good quality oil, and it was used for food, medicine, perfume, and cosmetics. By the time they got to the third pressing, though, the quality of the oil was really bad, uh, and they would use it for oil lamps and making soap. The olive press has a very strong connection with Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words, Gat Shmanim, and they literally mean press of oils. And the olive press is a great illustration of the pressure that Jesus was under as he was praying in Gethsemane. 
to the point he even started sweating blood. And he prayed three times, an equal number to the pressings. And even Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities. And so that's just a little bit about how an oil press works so that we can understand what's going on here at Gethsemane. Because on this night at the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, entered that olive press. And that sweet oil of grace and submission to the Father would be extracted from his life. And for Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane would be this place of intense pressure. And in fact, Scripture reveals some of these pressures that Jesus faced this night. The first thing that you'll see, the first pressure, is that he had internal pressures that he faced. And that's in your notes. The very language in the verses that we read in Scripture reveals the truth that Jesus was in a time of an intense emotional and spiritual pressure. It says here in verse 33 that Jesus began to be deeply distressed. That word distressed in the original language of Greek in which the New Testament was written literally means to be out of one's senses. So astonished and amazed and dumbfounded that you're kind of out of your senses. And then the Bible goes on to say not only did, was he deeply distressed, but he was deeply troubled. And that word troubled literally in that original language of Greek in the New Testament means heaviness. It's where they get their word for heaviness. And so Jesus was feeling the weight and the heaviness of the pressures that he was about to face going on that cross. And if that wasn't enough, not only was he out of his senses with all this heaviness of the sorrows, but it says here in uh, verse 34, Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And that word for overwhelm is such an interesting word. It's where we get our English word for peripheral. All right? And so in the Greek, uh, that word means to be completely surrounded or engulfed. And so I'm sure you've heard someone say, Yeah, I saw him out of my periphery or, you know, out of my peripheral vision. It's, that's where we get that word. And so what the Bible is explaining here is that Jesus is totally engulfed and surrounded in every way by this heavy weight of pressure and trouble that is making him incredibly uncomfortable as he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in fact, the weight is so much that the Bible says, even to the point of death. You see, it may have been possible that that weight and that heaviness of his sorrow could have possibly even may have killed Jesus in Gethsemane, but it didn't. And you say, well, man, that's pretty extreme. But if you think about it, if you look at studies that are done today about health issues, what is one of the number one reasons why people deal with certain health issues? Stress. In fact, stress is a leading cause of heart attacks and different sicknesses and ailments and illnesses that people deal with. And so you have in this passage Jesus who is just 
overwhelmed with the pressure and stress battling whether he needs to go to the cross or not. And so think about this pressure that the Lord is under. He knows he's about to suffer intense physical pain on the cross. He knows that he is about to be judged by his heavenly father because he's going to become sin on a cross. He knows that for the first time in all eternity, for the first time, he will breach that unbroken fellowship he has enjoyed with his father. He knows that he will be abandoned by his nation. He knows his disciples will abandon him. He knows that he's going to be tried and rejected and condemned to death on a cross. He knows that the most powerful human government, the Roman government, is about to unleash their fury on him at the cross. So these thoughts are probably what is going through Jesus' mind, and it is overwhelming him almost to the point of death. He is under a lot of internal pressure during this time. But not only was there internal pressures, but there were external pressures. That's your second point here. When we read in Luke chapter 22 about the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22 verse 44 says, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, And his sweat was as if it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You've got to remember that Jesus was human. And when he prayed, the capillaries in his forehead were probably busting and intermingling with the sweat and precipitation, or excuse me, the perspiration that was causing bloody sweat. That is pressure. And so while Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he was still a human. Totally divine, totally human. It's a mystery, but I praise God for it. Because let me tell you, I praise God that heaven came down to earth to be very personal with us. I'm so glad Jesus became man Because Jesus understands the pressures that you go through. Why? Because he went through the same exact pressures and stresses you you go through. I praise God that we have a heavenly father and his son Jesus Christ who can identify with the pressures that we face in our lives. He understands. He went through these pressures as a human And definitely while he was at Gethsemane. And so the pressure that Jesus was under was intense. Gethsemane is a place of pressure. So if we were to gather an application for this one point here is that we all go through pressures. And pressure will make you either bitter or better. It'll either harden you or soften you. My wife, Katrina, is a wonderful cook. And one of the instruments she uses to cook, uh, she uses it at least once or twice a week, is a thing called a a, a pressure uh, crock pot. And um, she puts the meat or vegetables in this crock pot, and she seals it off, 
and pressure builds very greatly in that uh, pot and the pressure literally softens those hard vegetables and meats in half the time it would take in a regular crock pot because of all that pressure. And pressure can soften our hearts if we will take these pressures to God and see how these pressures help refocus us from the temporal to the eternal. And so, again, Gethsemane is a place of pressure. What pressures are you under today? And how do you need to take those to the Lord? The second thing I want you to see about how Gethsemane is a place of transformation is not only is Gethsemane a place of pressure, but number two, Gethsemane is a place of prayer. And so we see how Jesus gathers his disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight of them behind to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John a little further, and he sits them down and says, hey, pray. And he goes a little further, and on that stone of agony, begins praying to the uh, Heavenly Father. And he says here to watch and to pray. And uh, three things that I want you to see under the second point where Gethsemane is a place of prayer. The first thing I want you to see under this point is the object of Jesus's prayer. What was the object of Jesus's prayer? Well, what I love about the prayer here is if you look in verse 36, the first thing that Jesus says is Abba, Father. And that word Abba, if you've never done a study of that word, it's an Aramaic term where, where it's a very intense and intimate word used to address God. It's like saying, Daddy. You know, my children have, have uh, called me um, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, in, in my days. Um, but, you know, they've called me father. This is my dad. Um, this is Shane. Um, but the favorite name is daddy. Because that to me means that we have a very close and special relationship. In fact, I didn't mention this in the first service, but I, I can mention it in the second service because she's not here. Uh, my daughter, Savannah, actually does have a very special name for me, and it's just the letter D. She just says, hey, D. And she knows how to milk me, you know. When, when, you know she likes to go to Sonic for ice cream, and, you know, she'll say, hey, Dad, can we get some ice cream? I'm like, no, nah, maybe not today. But when she says, hey, D, can we get some ice cream? Yes, we sure can. <laughs> It's, that's the kind of name that Jesus is using here for his father. It's a very personal and very intimate name. And so he addresses um, God as his daddy. And as you move throughout this prayer, he, um, he struggles because it says here um, uh, in verse 36... Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And so Jesus is talking about the wrath that he's about to incur when he goes on the cross. It's the cup of God's wrath that he will, you know, pour out upon sin. And so Jesus knows that this is coming. And he prays, 
you know, you know, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. And basically what Jesus is saying there, if there's any other way, if there's another way, let me do it that way. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And so as we move through this prayer, we see the second part of this prayer. We see the oppression of this prayer. And that's your second point. You see the oppression of this prayer because Jesus sees the cup of God's wrath coming upon him because Jesus is going to take upon the sin of the world upon him. And God cannot look upon sin and has to judge that sin. And so Jesus is very oppressed because he knows for the very first time in his life, he is going to be completely separated from his heavenly father. And it's a separation that is very uneasy. It's hard to describe the separation he's going to feel. I know for me, I can speak from personal experience. I know that this illustration may pale in comparison to what Jesus felt when he was separated on that cross. But I remember when I was a little boy, uh, my parents took me to that happiest place on earth, which is called what? Supposedly it's Disney World, but I saw a lot of kids crying there. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but we went to Disney World. I can't remember how old we were. My mom and dad are sitting back there, so they probably remember this story. But I'm going to tell it from my vantage point. I can't remember how old I was. I was seven or eight. And man, we just watched the fireworks at that big castle. And then uh, as you're leaving, you know, um, you know, I, I'm a man. I don't want to hold my dad's hand or anything, you know. And so I'm walking along trying to keep up with my parents. And after the fireworks end at Disney, uh, there's this uh, main street that you walk down. And you're trying to get tens of thousands of people to exit this park down this narrow road. And once we got outside the gates of Disney World, you know, I'm just going along. And all of a sudden, I look around. I don't recognize anybody. And there are people, you know, crisscrossing everywhere. And all of a sudden, I just realized I am in Florida, a long ways from Arkansas. I don't know any of these people. And my parents have left me here. And you talk about starting to tear up and starting to get this feeling of panic. I was separated from my dad and my, and my parents. And, but I, I did do one thing right. My parents had told me, if you get lost, just don't wander around, just stay put. And so for about a minute or two, I was just a tense panic. And, I, and it was just this separation anxiety that was really like this weight. It's like, what do I do? And then finally, I heard my name. Shane! And it was my dad! He came to save me! And you talk about a sense of relief. But for those few moments of separation, I was tense, had a lot of anxiety, and I felt incredibly uncomfortable. Again, it pales in comparison to when our Heavenly Father and Jesus were separated. For some of us who are parents, if you've ever lost a child in a store or at an amusement park, I mean, you have that separation anxiety. I can only imagine that 
a little bit of that is how Jesus would have felt with his father. So you have the oppression of this prayer. But thirdly, you have the obedience of this prayer. Mark 14, verse 36. Yet not what I will, but what you, God, will. So as Jesus concluded his prayer, he expressed absolute obedience to the Father's will. He did not want to be separated from his Father, but he knew that it was the will of God to redeem the world for him to go to that cross. And so if we were to make some kind of application point with this point about how Gethsemane is a place of prayer, I think it would be this. When the pressures and stress of life are weighing heavily upon you, we need to go to the Lord. A lot of times in our lives, we try to do other things to escape that stress and that pressure. We you know for some people, we, you know, they turn to, you know, a bottle or to alcohol. To some people, it may be some kind of drug. To some others, it may be an unhealthy form of entertainment on the internet. It may be something else. It may be an unhealthy food addiction. It may be, you know, going out with your friends and staying up late, watching movies. What I'm trying to say is a lot of times when pressure comes, we need to go to the Father, to our Heavenly Father first. We need to go to Him as our first resort, not our last resort. And so Gethsemane is a place of prayer. But thirdly, the last thing I want you to see is Gethsemane is not only uh, a place of pressure and a place of prayer, but is a place of priorities. As Jesus prayed in the garden that night, two sets of priorities are being played out, and these priorities reveal the contrast between our sinless Savior and sinful man. The first thing I want you to see under this point is the priorities of the Master. You see, Jesus had one overriding, overarching priority in his life, and that was to do the will of his Father. When he was 12 years old and was found teaching in the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus would say, The food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. The cross of Calvary and the death of Jesus Christ on that cross was never in question at Gethsemane. Jesus was obedient in prayer. But we also see a second set of priorities being played out. And that's by the disciples. And that is the priorities of man. And that is your second point, the priorities of man. You see, while Jesus is praying and wrestling with the greatest load any person would ever wrestle with in their life, the disciples were told to watch, but they were doing what? They were sleeping. You see, Jesus had told them to stay to watch. That word watch literally means to stay awake, to be responsible, and to be vigilant. 
But the fact is, they weren't vigilant that night. They were not responsible that night. In fact, when Jesus returns the first time and sees the disciples sleeping, he calls out Simon Peter. I think it is very interesting in this passage that Jesus calls out Peter by his original name, which is Simon. You remember Jesus you know, called Simon to be his disciple. And as Jesus got to know Simon, he eventually changed his name to Peter, which means rock, which means solid and secure. But he called Peter by his old name, Simon, which Simon literally means to listen or to hearken or to hear. You see, what's going on here is that Peter was acting like the old person, Simon. He wasn't acting like the rock. Peter had just boasted in verse 31 how he would be willing to die for Jesus. Yet a few verses later, he can't even stay awake to watch and pray for his Savior. You see, Jesus goes away two other times. And both times he comes back to see the disciples sleeping. You see, the disciples were under a different priority that night. You can kind of see the pattern of their behavior. And I think it's a pattern we all kind of fall into ourselves. You first see that the disciples were self-confident. In Mark 14, verse 31, it says here that Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. That's verse 31. But yet, in Mark 14, 37, Jesus returned to see his disciples and found them sleeping. So you see, they were self-confident, and then they were sleeping, and then thirdly, they sinned. Because we see in Mark 14, verse 50, it says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. When Jesus was arrested and betrayed, the disciples stick around. No, they cut out. So they were prideful and self-confident. They were sleeping on the job. They were lazy. They sinned. I think the application for us this morning under this point may be, you know, in order to achieve victory and to achieve God's purpose and plan for our lives, we must stay vigilant and watchful in prayer. We've got to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the schemes of the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the armor of God, after Paul lists out the armor of God, he talks and pray these things. He talks about how we should pray. And so when we let that old Simon within us control us, we can expect nothing but failure in our Christian life. Our priorities need to be that of our Heavenly Father. Whose priorities do you live by today? Are you trying to please someone? Are you trying to please the one, our Heavenly Father? And so you see how Gethsemane is a place of pressure, uh, it is a place of prayer, and it is a place of priorities. And so here's the personal application, and you'll see this in your notes. The personal application is this. Gethsemane, 
are those experiences and places of pressure in our lives which drive us to prayer in order to focus our priorities on the eternal that produce the transformational choices and actions we need to take to live the life of true meaning and fulfillment for God's kingdom purposes. So that's the personal application from the scriptures today. Now I want to turn our attention to not just the personal application, but I want to talk to you about the community application. The community application this morning is a place called Gethsemane Outreach. If you remember, uh, and if you are new here uh, at Gospel Light, every year Gospel Light has a, a theme of the year. Last year it was the year of the child. But this year it is the what? The year of the church. And there are three parts to that theme. For the first four months, we focused on the campus. For the next four months, May, June, July, and August, we're going to talk about community. And then the last four months, we're going to talk about calling. And so we're in the midst of community. How the church needs to be in the community making a difference for Jesus Christ. And if you'll notice this morning, I wore my four hot springs shirt. All right? Woo! Woo! Um, but anyway, um, you can buy these shirts over here if you want to. But if you remember, we introduced four hot springs early in May because the community knows a lot about what the church is against, but the community doesn't know what the church may always be for. And so we want to partner as a church with different organizations that are making a difference for Christ. If you remember back in May, we had Joanne Carter from Change Point Crisis Pregnancy Resource Center come and share about how they are making a difference in the community and how we as a church can partner with Change Point. And she left those bottles that we could put change in that you can still turn in to the ministry booth and we'll get those uh, to Miss uh, Joanne Carter and Change Point, by the way. But today, in the month of June, we're going to talk about Gethsemane Outreach. And then in July, we'll talk about another organization and then in August. But this morning, we're talking about Gethsemane Outreach. What is Gethsemane Outreach? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's in your notes. The first thing I want you to see about Gethsemane Outreach is the purpose of Gethsemane Outreach. And the purpose of Gethsemane Outreach is this. Gethsemane Outreach is a Christ-centered, faith-based, nonprofit mission with the purpose to bring help, hope, healing, and holiness through intense discipleship to individuals with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Gethsemane Outreach was started in 2014 by two crazy guys. And the reason I can call them crazy is because I am one of those guys. The other guy is sitting, where are you at, Jeff? I know I just saw you somewhere. Where are you at, Jeffro? There you are. Where? Oh, he's at the atrium. He's at the atrium because he's at the Gethsemane booth. But uh, Jeff Taylor was the one that baptized this morning. And me and Jeff had this vision from the Lord to reach out to men who needed help and hope who dealt with different difficulties, whether it be drug, alcohol, homelessness, or whatever it may be, gambling addiction, whatever it may be, we decided to start this ministry called Gethsemane Outreach. 
And the whole purpose is for individuals to undergo some intense teaching and training so that the weight of God's conviction will challenge these men to change into someone useful in God's kingdom. Kind of like an olive is crushed and pressed and the oil that comes out is useful. Because an olive in its you know, raw state is really not very helpful and useful at all. But once crushed and pressed, that oil can be used for cosmetics, food, oil, medicine. It's very useful. And so we're taking individuals at Gethsemane Outreach and taking them through an intense time of discipleship and um, teaching and training in order to help them become usable to God's kingdom purposes and glory. And so you have the purpose of Gethsemane Outreach. Now let's talk about the places of Gethsemane Outreach. Um, Gethsemane Outreach started as a men's transitional living uh, place. And that's what we still do today. Uh, so your first place in your notes there is men's transitional living. And we have two men's homes. One's called Liberty House. And you can see Liberty House was our first house on the screen here. And you can see some pictures of that. What's very interesting about Liberty House is that it was the old crisis pregnancy resource center. But when we got to talking to Joanne Carter uh, back in 2014 about what we were doing, you know, they had just moved to another place that was a lot bigger there uh, behind the Garland County Library. And they were trying to sell this facility. Well, Joanne found out what we were doing and she went back to her board and said, hey, we could have the potential to sell this to a, to a person, uh, to people that want to use it as a ministry. So they slashed the price in half. We had an investor buy the building for us and we're paying back the investor interest-free, and we should have that house paid off by this time next year. So we're very excited about that. And then this, yeah, hey, praise the Lord. But here's another thing. We have another home. A couple of years after 2014, we uh, got our second home called Redemption House, and you'll see pictures of that on your screen. This is another men's transitional living home uh, off of Meadowbrook Street. And uh, the story of this house is very unique. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but to sum it up was I was at a church preaching one Sunday, uh, filling in for, for the pastor, and I had some of the men of Gethsemane come up and give their testimonies, kind of like Tommy, you know, had his testimony read for the baptism. But we had the men come up, give some of their testimonies, and at the end of the service, I had a wonderful couple come up to me and said, hey, we have this house that we believe that God wants you to have. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I don't have any money. You know, all the money we use is for Gethsemane. And they said, no, we want to give you this house. And I said, what? Let me think about that. Okay. And so God is using this house that can have up to eight or nine men where they can do their devotionals, their morning meditation. Uh, it's a safe place for them to find help and hope and hear about Jesus Christ. But as Gethsemane has continued to expand, not only have we expanded from a men's transitional living, but secondly, we have expanded now into what's called women's transitional living. And we have a small house called The Well. And the reason we call it The Well is because it is um, taken out of John chapter 4, where Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman at The Well. And so we have just entered into this time of um, uh, helping women 
overcome their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And uh, we have a wonderful lady named Cindy Hamilton. And Cindy, I know you're here because I can see you right there. If you want to stand up, this is Cindy Hamilton. And we just opened this very recently. We only have one or two ladies, uh, but we've got to finish up a few little things with this house that God has provided for us. And, um, and we're going to have up to four or five women in this house who will be getting help and hope in their time. And Cindy's going to be working with them. And we appreciate you, Cindy, uh, helping us with that. She is a licensed Christian counselor here in town, and uh, she's already off to a great start there. And then a third aspect, as we've been doing Gethsemane Outreach, one of the things that we wanted to do is give back to the community. And so we started a community outreach with Gethsemane Outreach. And so one of the things that we do is the last Tuesday of every month, we have what's called a service day. And for months and months, we've been doing this service day at our Liberty House location. But service day had begun uh, getting so big that we had to move uh, service day. Well, you ask, well, what is service day? What we do on service day is from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the last Tuesday of every month is that we go and we go find people who are on the streets. We bring them to our location. They can get a free lunch. They can get a free haircut. They can get a free hot shower. They can get free laundry service. They can take a look in our clothes closet to see if they need any clothes. And we do that every month. And it's an incredible ministry. And it got so large that we had to move location. And that's where you, Gospelite, come into play. Because for the first time this past Tuesday, May 28th, you'll see the pictures on the screen. This is the gymnasium across the street here. We had our first service day at Gospel Light where 53 men and women came to get a shower, a free meal, free clothing, a free haircuts. And so we thank you, Gospel Light, for partnering with Gospel Light. They get free hygiene kits when they leave. And so we're going to continue to do it at Gospel Light. And this is a way that you can serve because we need people to help bring food, to help prepare the food, to help serve the food, you know, to help pass out hygiene kits, to help monitor the uh, men's and women's closet, and to help do some different things on service day. You can partner with Gethsemane in that way. Um, uh, you can also bring uh, clothes, the clothes closet that we've opened up. That's another way that you can participate. If you want to drop off those clothes here at the church office, we'll get those uh, organized in the church closet. That's a way you can participate in this ministry. Another part of our community outreach is kind of unique, um, is our community garden. We've been doing the community garden. Uh, I can't remember if this is our second or third year we've done it. But um, across the street from the Embassy Suites and the Hot Springs Convention uh, Center uh, on Palm Street, there is what's called a community garden. And we have these um, square plots where anybody can come and we'll help you garden um, your vegetables or flowers or whatever. Gethsemane will help, uh, you know, garden for you. And you can come garden with Gethsemane. And all the food and vegetables, we have a little table that the community or, or the homeless can come and get those. Um, but it's just a wonderful way to give back to the community. And so we've been doing that, like I said, for two or three years now. And that's a way that if you've got the green thumb, because I can tell you right now, I have the brown thumb. 
So I'm not very good at this gardening gig. But if that's something that interests you, maybe that's somehow you can partner with Gethsemane in helping us with that ministry. Now, the next thing that we do is I'm super, super excited about. It's our boys' transitional living. And so... This one's special because this was never on the radar until a year ago when I had to send one of my adopted boys to a transitional living home. It changed his life. He still struggles, but it did change him. And I got to thinking, man, wouldn't it be great to have a place for boys who struggle with authority, respect, for them to go through a year-long program where they can be trained on how to be a godly young man. And so I won't go through the whole story, but God provided the appropriate staff because you have to have an appropriate staffing for something like this. And you'll see the pictures behind me. Tomorrow, at 3 o'clock, we close in this house. And so our hope is through the summer, we'll have different uh, times when, you know, the church and different people can come out and have work days uh, to help get this house ready. And we hope to start receiving boys by uh, late summer, uh, end of August, or the 1st of September. And it's going to be junior high boys, mainly. And we're going to have up to eight or nine boys in this home. And so the name of this ministry, you know, to kind of keep all of our Gethsemane ministry straight, we name them. Uh, this is going to be called The Forge. You know, a forge is a place where iron is heated up. And a blacksmith takes it out and hammers it into that utensil or instrument that is used for. And that's what we're going to be doing with boys is through intense discipleship, you know, shaping them to be what God wants them to be. And so last but not least um, um, is what we call our international missions. Um, in 2017, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. And it was an incredible experience. We got to go to a place called Hope Rising, which is a ministry in Laogon, Haiti, where they have an orphanage, a church, and, and they do a lot of different things out in the community. But the need is so great because if you remember back in 2010, Haiti was rocked by a devastating earthquake. Haiti is the third poorest nation in the world. It is the number one poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And the need was so great, uh, I started partnering with, um, after I got back to Arkansas, uh, I formed relationships uh, with a young man that I met down there. He's like 22 years old now. He's on fire for the Lord. And uh, we have started a ministry through Gethsemane Outreach called Stout Hearted Ministries, where once a week, uh, 75 to 100 children come to this home that we rent for a hundred dollars a month in Haiti, and once a once a week, these children come all day on Saturday, and they are taught the Word of God. 
they are fed probably the best meal they will receive all week because most of these children, because I was there, I saw it with my own eyes, they live in dirt floors and just sticks and tin roofs. Because again, a lot of their homes were destroyed from the earthquake. And so we've been able to rent this home and uh, our biggest need there is really just financial, just to send money down there to buy food and uh, different journaling books that we uh, do for that ministry, and Gethsemane helps sponsor that. In fact, uh, the young man that helps run this ministry, he texts me every Saturday at least 30 or 40 pictures from his phone, and he, he, he was so excited to tell me that this, yesterday, they ministered to 87 children, and so they are very excited about what God's doing down there. And so I want to end with this, the prayer of Gethsemane Outreach. Here is our prayer for Gethsemane Outreach and how Gospel Light can continue to partner with Gethsemane Outreach. Number one, we want to exalt Christ. We want to exalt Christ. No ifs, ands, or buts. We want to point people to Jesus. Number two, pray for wisdom for our leadership as this ministry continues to expand. Number three, volunteers. How can you help? When you leave this morning... If you'll go through this door in the atrium area, we have a Gethsemane outreach opportunities to serve. This will show you how you can help volunteer and partner. I want you to understand, the people that we reach for Gethsemane outreach, we want to help plug them into a local church, okay? And so we are so thankful to have found gospel light because, you know, the individuals that we reach are not always, you know, the prettiest or the wealthiest or the cleanest, but they are all precious in God's sight because we are all, all fearfully and wonderfully made. And you Gethsemane guys, I want to tell you, this church has welcomed you. And you will always be welcomed here. Okay? We love you guys. And so, so please take one of these and you can see how you can volunteer. It's got our website on here. You can go out here and you can sign up for our email newsletter that we can send out. Uh, that way you can see how you can volunteer and participate. And uh, man, just, or you can contact me or Jeff Taylor or Cindy Hamilton. We want to partner with Gospel Light and continue to uh, be a light in this community. And then finally, um, uh, the last one there is just resources. There are different resources you can give to this ministry from the small appliances, to silverware, to dishware, to, you know, if you want to give financially to this ministry, you know, you can do that. So I want to conclude this service by having a time of invitation. You have heard what Gethsemane was like for our Savior. You've heard about Gethsemane outreach. What is God calling you to do?